Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I'll examine a work or part of a work by an American writer published by the Library of America, roughly around 100 pages an episode. In this episode, we will continue our examination of Frank Norris's masterpiece, McTeague. In the first part of Frank Norris's McTeague, we are introduced to Polk Street and our major characters. We learn that they are all hoarders of various stripes, yet the community still seems to function and even thrive. Our major character, McTeague, is a dentist who courts his friend's, his friend's cousin, Trina Seppe, and prepares to marry her. But before they marry, Trina wins $5,000 in the lottery. As I did with uh, Norris's other work, Vandover and the Brute, I want to compare this money, this $5,000, to money amounts that we're more familiar with in 2017. With the turn of the century, or turn of the last century, I should say, you can roughly multiply U.S. currencies by about 25 to get a rough estimate of purchasing power. But you need to keep in mind that wages were a little bit less in those days. Ford, for instance, was revolutionary in implementing the $5 day, while the equivalent of about $100, it would be, it'd be pretty tough to raise a family on that, that equivalent of $100 a day right now. In fact, the movement for the $15 minimum wage is, for instance, arguing that 120 is the bare minimum Americans need to survive in this day and age. So, um, you know, you have to take these estimates with a bit of a grain of salt and put them in their context. But in any case, we are looking at a pretty nice nest egg for Trina and McTeague in the $5,000 she won. It'd be about $125,000. It's not enough to make anyone rich. You know, it's a, enough to kind of get started in a working class neighborhood, enough to buy a home. Um, we were dealing with much larger sums in Vandover. Knowing how little the lottery winnings are in contrast to kind of the big picture of the capitalist economy, it helps us put into context the decline of the McTeague family, and it makes it all a little bit more tragic when you think about just how little it took to destroy this family. The middle third of the novel covers, I guess, the good years or the good times of McTeague's marriage and the beginning of their decline. So picking up where we left off, chapter nine. By the way, if, if you, you might want to go back and listen to the first part of my analysis of McTeague to to keep up. Chapter 9. This is a rather lengthy chapter exploring the wedding day of the McTeagues. We see the beginning of Trina's miserliness when she refuses to spend more than $200 of the 5000 saved up to set up their household. They discuss their problems with Marcus, who is jealous of both the marriage and their winnings. One thing that comes off strongly in the wedding ceremony is just how simple and rather awkward McTeague is in public situations. In 19th century fashion, the wedding night is only hinted at, but we do get an important scene where Tina admits to being afraid of McTeague. This is perhaps foreshadowing, because eventually McTeague will kill, murder uh, Trina. She stands up to him throughout the novel on money issues, but this overall fear of McTeague's size and just physical strength never goes away. McTeague is in fact a giant of a man. He's famous locally for pulling teeth with his bare hands. But it is worth reading this scene because it is so odd. It seems that Trina wants security, and it will be the same thing she wants with her money and her nest egg, but McTeague wants simply to possess Trina. Any love between the two seems to be a product of this, these fundamental needs of both characters. From page 389 and 390 in the Library of America version. 
What indeed was Trina afraid of? She could not tell. But what did she know of McTeague after all? Who was this man that had come into her life? Who had taken her from her home and from her parents, and with whom she was now left alone, here in the strange, vast flat? Oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, she cried. McTeague came nearer, sat down beside her and put one arm around her. What are you afraid of, Trina? he said reassuringly. I don't want to frighten you. She looked at him wildly, her adorable little chin quivering, the tears brimming in her narrow blue eyes. Then her glance took on a certain int intentness, and she peered curiously into his face, saying in almost a whisper, I am afraid of you. But the dentist did not hear her, and heed her. An immense joy seized upon him, the joy of possession. Trina was with his very own Trina was his very own now. She lay there in the hollow of his arm, helpless and very pretty. Those instincts that in him were so close to the surface suddenly leaped to life, shouting and clamoring not to be resisted. He loved her. Ah, did he not love her? The smell of her hair, of her neck, rose to him. So that's that. Um, it's all a little bit creepy and strange, uh, their, their relationship. Chapter 10. This chapter opens with Trina's obsession about McTeague's love for her. She needs to be constantly reassured of his love. So this is just a few pages after where I left off on page 392. She loved McTeague now with a blind, unreasoningly love that admitted of no doubt or hesitancy. Indeed, it seemed to her that it was only after her marriage with the dentist that she had really begun to love him. With the absolute final surrender of herself, the irrevocable ultimate submission had come an affection the like of which he had never dreamed in the old B Street days. But Trina loved her husband, not because she fancied she saw in him any of those noble or gentle qualities that inspire affection. The dentist might or might not possess them. It was all one with Trina. She loved him because she had given herself to him freely, unreservedly, had merged her individuality into his. She was his. He, she belonged to him forever and forever. Nothing that he could do, so she told herself. Nothing she herself could do could change her in that respect. McTeague might cease to love her, might leave her, might even die. It would be all the same. She was his. Uh, notice the language of possession in a book that's largely about greed. Um, so there's another layer of greed here in that these relationships are defined really in almost capitalist terms of possession and property. Her conservative approach to the family money supply is only joked at at this time when we find that she is saving money in hopes of putting back the $200 she sort of borrowed from the account to pay for the wedding and to get the family started. She does this by literally nickeling and diming McTeague and cutting costs where she can. Yet Trina does upgrade their life a little bit. Trina talks McTeague into drinking bottled beer instead of steam beer. She also gets him to buy slightly better clothing and to wear better clothing in public. The first major fight comes when McTeague runs a larger place. In fact, the family had been talking about finding a better location because they seemed to have been able to afford it. They even were looking at a space repeatedly. Uh, McTeague found it available and he went ahead and rented it. Um, when McTeague went back and told Trina about it, she backs out of the deal. They have to lose the $35 deposit. Trina accuses McTeague of essentially being stupid, of being reckless, of being irresponsible, and says that he must cover most of the cost. The miserliness of Trina then takes physical form as she hands him $10 in silver. And this is a point Norris makes directly. And here we start to see Trina's character drift over 
into Zerkoff's, who's obsessed with gold. No, not the gold piece, she said to herself. It's too pretty. He can have the silver. She made the change and counted out ten silver dollars in her palm. But what difference did it make in the appearance and weight of the little chamois bag? The bag was shrunken and withered. Long wrinkles appeared running downward from the drawstring. It was a lamentable sight. Trina looked longingly at the ten broad pieces in her hand. Then suddenly, all of her intuitive desire of savings, her instinct of hoarding, her love of money for money's sake rose strong within her. Chapter 11 In this chapter, we are introduced to some of the people in Polk Street. Maria Makapa, a woman who collects trash for recycling, and her buyer, the Jew Zerkoff, are planning to get married. As I said in the last episode, they have a very strange relationship. They have a mutual economic relationship as Makapa gathers up stuff to be recycled and Zerkoff is the fence uh, or the recycler in this relationship. But also they have a very strange psychological relationship as Maria tells Zerkoff stories about her childhood in which she remembers these gold plates that were in her ancestral home. Um, Zerkoff loves to hear these stories and gets almost uh, a sexual desire in hearing these stories about this gold. And I tried to uh, take on um, this character in the previous episode, particularly the fact that Norris you know, presents him as a Jew. We also are reintroduced to Miss Baker and Old Grannis, who are two elderly neighbors of the McTeagues, who are also getting closer and, putting, and building on greater intimacy. And their relationship seems to be developing quite nicely at this point. The odd man out in the neighborhood is Marcus. Marcus is Trina's cousin and McTeague's old friend. He is still steaming over losing Trina to McTeague and therefore losing the lottery winnings. He focuses his energy on trendy leftist politics. His loyalty to these politics is based on long-standing feelings of resentment. He does, however, find a girlfriend named Selena. They decide to arrange a double-date picnic together. Actually, I think it's a triple date. It's McTeague, Trina, Marcus, Selena, and another family is there, but they're not that important. The picnic breaks down into violence during a wrestling match that was intended originally to be friendly. McTeague breaks Marcus's arm and injures him quite severely. Now, when McTeague has shown that he's unable to treat Marcus's wounds, he's exposed as a poor doctor. Everyone there thought he was a real doctor and therefore could simply treat uh, Marcus's wounds. But McTeague knows nothing about treating these injuries. As we already know, McTeague is a functional dentist. He can pull teeth, he can make crowns, he can fill cavities, and he can perform those other day-to-day dental services. But he never went to dental school and never had any formal medical training. Chapter 12. Now, in this chapter, things start to get a little bit strange for the reader, and um, some bizarre things start to happen. Maria and Zerkov are sitting together, and their relationship is developing quite nicely. Zerkov asks the story about the gold plates in her ancestral home. Maria claims that she doesn't know what he's talking about. In fact, we've heard, we've witnessed this story told at least twice by this point in the story, and we know it's been told many other times. Zerkov becomes enraged, and Maria, frightened, goes to see Trina. Trina confirms that she has also heard the story. So how do we read this? My guess is that Maria, by finding a relationship with Zerkov, and, and I think at this point they're married, could begin to abandon her obsession about the gold plates. But Zerkov's memory of the plates suggests his continuing greed. Zerkov tries to chase down Maria and, and bring her home and get the story out of her. Another way of reading this is perhaps that this gold lust is almost like a a virus that gets passed on, but it can be cured through certain behaviors. 
Um, and we see several characters who seem to overcome this gold lust. Maria does to a degree by forgetting the story about her ancestry. And we'll see later that Miss Baker and Old Grannis do this as well. Now, at some point, Trina's mother asks for some, some money. Uh, now, Trina has this $5,000 of savings, um, but they need some money. And you can expect that when the family runs into hard times, they'll ask the person who has a little bit of extra cash. Trina, though, resists sending it. In the end, she refuses to send the money at all, but she does tell McTeague that she sent it. This becomes a common way for Trina to save extra money and basically to steal from McTeague. She will either overestimate expenses or claim that she had made payments that she has not made. Through all this, Trina insists that McTeague declare his love for her. So it's kind of like within the family economy, Trina's engaging in a lot of bookkeeping shenanigans, basically saying, yeah, I made that payment, meanwhile pocketing the, the cash. Um, chapter 13 while at work McTeague gets notice from the city ordering him to stop practicing dentistry because he does not have a degree since the McTeague's since McTeague is a bit dense he shows this order to Trina to try to interpret it and understand it it's pretty obvious to everyone that the whistleblower here was Marcus who simply wanted to hurt McTeague it's not clear why the government would have been interested in investigating a kind of corner's corner dentist. Um, there are a few options for the McTeagues at this point. One is to continue the practice and hope the city just forgets about it or goes away. Hopes it was just a, maybe it was a joke or maybe uh, it was just a warning that the city is not really going to follow through on. A second option is to shut down the practice and find new work. A third is to fight the ruling. I guess a fourth would be to go to dental school, but that's not really practical. As other characters point out throughout the rest of the novel, McTeague may have had a case to defend his practice. This was still the early years of professionalization, and McTeague had been practicing dentistry for so for such a long time. He apparently had a good track record. He had a large consumer base. Uh, he had people who came regularly to his practice, and he wasn't like didn't seem to be harming people. He probably could have won his if he he probably could have won if he would challenge this in City Hall. The problem seems to be that Trina did not want to spend money on a lawyer or did not want to disrupt things too much. And McTeague is simply, frankly, just a little bit too stupid to really understand what was happening to him and to do much about it. But we can kind of talk. I think it's time to talk a little bit about professionalization. Um, I'm not quite sure how to interpret this. I, I of course, don't want to send go to a dentist or a doctor who's not certified and, and professional. But in those early years of, of the establishment of professionalization, um, there was a bit of co-option of, of traditional and uh, more cr crafty practices of certain professions as they got taken over by the educated elite of those professions. I guess the best example of this that I've come across in reading history is what's happened, what happened to the midwives. The mid my, midwives used to care for most of most pregnant women during delivery of children, but at some point men took over obstetrics in the through getting medical degrees and gradually phased out midwives. And it's only been recently that midwives have come back as a as a thriving practice. Of course, now as professionalized as OBGYN doctors. Um, is there a bit of class war in the act of professionalization? I, I think at the time there probably was. Uh, there's no evidence here that McTeague was not doing his job adequately. Um, there's no evidence here that he was harming people through his, his practice of dentistry. He knew his limits. 
and he tried to work within those limits. Anyways, moving on. McTeague decides that he just wants to continue practicing. He hopes the city order will go away. But he gets later on, he gets a visit from a government agency. I think he gets some harsher letters as well. So McTeague finally is forced to close the practice. Trina, however, refuses to fund any money to transition McTeague to a new profession or to help him, you know, help the family kind of make its new way. She says, no, the money must stay in the bonds. We depend on the interest. She forces him to go out and get a new job. Now, chapter 14. At this point, the novel becomes really, really hard to read, especially if you have any feelings for these characters. Um, it, it already was difficult, but it gets really hard here. Trina moves them into a single-room apartment on the top floor of a building. McTeague refuses at first to live there when he sees the place, but Trina insists, insists that she will not pay for anything larger. And since McTeague no longer has a job, he kind of loses his ability to argue the point. They have an estate sale, selling the equipment from the dental practice and most of McTeague's personal possessions, including most of the items that he valued, such as his prints and his statuettes and other little things. He, however, refuses to sell the gold tooth because he's, that's kind of personal or professional grievances because the person who would buy it would have been a competing dentist. They instead use that as a table in their new home. He also seems to hold on to his concertina, his, his beloved instrument. But the whole chapter is really hard to read because there's, it's so useless. There's no reason for it. The, the family economics aren't that bad. They have, you know, $5,000 saved up. Um, there's no reason they have to sell off all their materials, but Trina insists on it. Chapter 15. At this point, Trina becomes obsessed with her work, taking on extra hours and extra jobs making Noah's Ark animal toys. Trina herself refuses any pleasure in life. She forces McTeague to return to his old habit of drinking steam beer and smoking cheap tobacco. And there's a nice little moment in which McTeague, you know, says, well, I like bottled beer now. I'm not going to go back to drinking steam beer. And Trina responds, well, I'm not going to pay for you to drink that expensive beer anymore. It's rather funny because it was originally Trina who convinced McTeague to kind of upgrade his living standards. McTeague gets a job in a factory that makes dental equipment. Trina orders um, McTeague to find a new job immediately after he's fired. He, he's apparently not fired because he does a bad job. It seems it's just depression or economic recessions or something like that, just business cycles. And he loses his job. He comes home one day, and Trina immediately orders him to go out and find a new job, even though it's about to rain. When he asks for cab fare, she says, ah, I can't afford the cab fare. So he goes out in the rain looking for work. He checks out a few places. He fails to find any work, but he runs into some friends who buy him some drinks. Um, and another undercurrent here is the community knows what happened to the McTeagues, and they all assume they're really on hard times. Um, I think they don't really, they're not aware of how much the family actually still has saved up, uh, but there's this impression that they kind of are on their last wheel. And so he gets a little bit of favors from his friends in the form of drinks. Meanwhile, Maria Macapa comes to visit Trina, worried about Zirkoff's increasingly irrational behavior uh, and violent behavior. When McTeague comes back without a new job, Trina is upset. She smells alcohol on her husband's breath and wonders if McTeague is perhaps holding, hoarding money. Well, that's where I'll stop for today. It's about 100 pages. In the next episode, I will finish up with McTeague and examine some of the most important themes of the novel. It is really a fun novel, but at times, especially in this middle part of the book, it gets really hard to read. 
Even if you don't have that much sympathy for the characters, Norris does a really good job of making the titular character, McTeague, at least somewhat likable. He, he's not, although he becomes a, a murderer and a violent person, he's not that kind of person at the beginning. He's really kind of a gentle person who just has very simple needs and simple desires. Um, but he gets kind of, through this relationship with Trina and this winning this lottery money, he kind of gets sent on this path to disaster. To see his decline is rough to read, especially since so much of it is unnecessary and you see so many escapes. In this way, the book is very much like Vandover and the Brute, where you see a decline of a character that was almost completely unnecessary. Just a few tweaks in personal behavior or characteristics uh, could have avoided this. Um, well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, um, comment, or subscribe on iTunes. Uh, if you want to contact me or send me an email, you can reach me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we will finish up McTeague in the next 100-page episode. It's